This is the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Anfield. Hello, it's Paul Wheelock and welcome to your latest Liverpool FC podcast on the Blood Red channel. And we're doing something a little different for today's podcast as it all hangs around one brilliant story you've hopefully read by now. And if not, please do go and check it out. It's titled FSG nearly lost Liverpool ownership to Boston rival and Anfield would have been very different. And it is on the Liverpool.com website right now. It was written by Ollie Connolly, who I'm delighted to say joins me on the line now. Ollie, long time no see, mate. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing okay. How are you? Yeah, all right. We, we were chatting before we actually press record on this conversation. It, it is unprecedented. It is strange times, but you've just got to get there, haven't you? You've got to switch off at the right time and then try and put other things to your back in mind and stay positive. You have indeed. I, I'm by nature a workaholic, so it, it makes I have to take effort to stop working. So I either go into I'm just working all the time mode or I am just wrestling with my dog and I forgot to work. So that's kind of where I'm at the moment. I'll tell you what, with two kids, I may throw a dog into the mix because wrestling with a dog sounds pretty cathartic at the oh, moment, to be honest. Take, take a, a couple of hours of your time, burn out some energy for both of them. I think it would be worthwhile. Oh, good advice, mate. I may take you up on that. Uh, we're talking about one article in particular, but the content has kept coming from Liverpool.com and Liverpool Echo. And if, if anyone's unaware of the relationship between the two they are sister websites liverpool.com like blood red became a big project in july of last year and ollie you've been working them for a, a few months now I, I presume that's right isn't it yeah if i knew what time was anymore in these times then i would be able to give you a rough estimate of what it was i think i came just before they postponed football Paul. i think that's when I arrived. so it was your fault <laughs> yeah, I think so. believe it or not if people go through my archives i believe my first story is the one that got memed that is like um the only thing that can stop Liverpool win the title now is like a uh, a mass event, you know, mass extinction event. So. Yeah, like an apocalypse, wasn't it? Kind <laughs> yeah, of not thing. too bad. Yeah, so you wrote, that was one of your first articles you wrote and then yeah, it came. Day one. Yeah, oh, well, there you go. It's definitely your fault. <laughs> now, check that out. Check that article out as well. It's probably done in tongue-in-cheek, but unfortunately, <laughs> it's predicted the future slightly. But yeah, that's, an, that's another story entirely. The one we're on about today is is all about FSG and another Boston businessman and sports franchise owner. I, I learned so much from reading about it, but can you just give us an overview to the listeners who haven't had a chance to, to have a look at it yet? What's it about? Uh, I mean, it's a story about egos, I think, more than anything. It's about the tussle between Boston culturally and in terms of the, where the sports franchises sit in Boston between Tom Werner, who... Uh, the guys who make up FSG and own Liverpool now, and own the Boston Red Sox, and then Robert Kraft, who is the kind of the the unofficial mayor of the city and who owns the New England Patriots, which is the most successful sports franchise in modern history when you look at franchise value going up and then just wins on the field, particularly in a salary cap sport, and how he once was given the chance, it was his piece of paper to sign to take Liverpool back in the Moors era and then was kind of sort of interested but more so playing a mind game with the other two fellas uh, when the second time came around after <laughs> Hicks and Gillette yeah and he's a really interesting character isn't he you know I've, I've heard of him before but I hadn't known as much about him and then I did delve deeper into him after reading the article he's pretty charismatic isn't he? he's got some very high powered friends and it did sound like serious that on those two occasions that he could have taken over Liverpool before FSG and, and before Hicks and Gillette as well it is. I, I just find it funny, though, when I was reporting the story and then when I was reading around it, too, that everyone is, is like, well, he came to view Anfield and he was 
umming and ahhing about it. And it was his. If he wanted it, they would have done the deal within 24 hours or so. And then he was like, well, I'm not going to do it because of the salary cap. And you kind of think like, well, did you not know about that? At the first <laughs> instance, that there wasn't a salary cap in the Premier League. But yeah, he's a really outgoing, charismatic guy. Um, I mean, it's that thing between confidence and arrogance. I think he falls just on the side of confidence with a little bit of arrogance that makes it almost fun. But he is the guy when uh, Donald Trump has his presidential committee that he's got for the coronavirus now of how do you restart sports. All of the commissioners who are basically the czars of the sports over there who preside over these mega billion pound leagues and try and keep the owners in check that they work for them, which is a a weird thing. situation in the first place it's all these commissioners and it's the head of tennis and so on and then it's bob Kraft. like that's the, that's where he sits at the table he is not just your regular owner he is friends with the president he sits on all on all the big councils and just to give the listeners a bit of a insight if, if they don't know obviously the patriots are this hugely successful sporting franchise he took over them in 1994 what has he actually led them to so when he took them over, they were a complete doormat. Um, they were basically going to leave the city. They were going to leave New England as a whole um, with the different owners that were looking to buy them. They were going to leave. He was a season ticket holder. He was a fan. So him buying the team was purely about keeping it in New England. Um, and then he was able to build a new stadium, which is the massive Gillette complex that's there now, which is kind of the first iteration of this megaplex complex uh, idea that sports franchises have now, right? Where it's not just the stadium itself, it's the fan shop, it's they own all the restaurants, they make all the revenue off the match day stuff. So he just revitalized the franchise and made it worth, I think it's like 4.1, 4.2 billion as of today from, he bought it for 200 odd million. And then on the field, in a sport that's salary capped and is legislated and built into the sport with drafts with a salary cap that you should not have success, all they do is win and they win big and they win game after game and then they win Lombardies and they have six Lombardi trophies, which in, in the modern era is seemingly unfeasible and is by far the most. So he's enjoying this team with the success, I should say, with the team he absolutely loves. He used to go watch. Mm-hmm. He's now the owner. Why were Liverpool ever on his radar in both instances? I think the passion and the, the culture of the fan base interest in my also think just money. The Premier League was the thing. And at the time, if you think back to what happened with the Glazers and then what happened uh, with Arsenal, with the Cronkies too, what was happening at the boardroom levels of these clubs and the people involved in just financial movements at the time, they were basically handing American franchise owners Premier League teams. They were saying, you know, we will leverage against your American franchise. Here's free cash. Do you want to own a Premier League team? A Premier League team can, of course, become a bottomless pit if you get caught up in the salaries and stuff, which is why some of them were wary. But I think it was just, as with anyone who looked at it and as FSG did afterwards, it was a depreciated asset. It was a real special chance to come and get a world historic team. And Kraft has been, for the longest time in um, in the NFL, has been the guy who's been pushing the NFL to adopt things like the Premier League, to try and go as international as possible, to take games to China, to bring games to London. He is the guy who has basically forced all of that through at the top level. So he's always been interested in kind of the global landscape of sports. And obviously the Premier League is the is the hub of all that. So I think just the name Premier League got him excited at first, more so than the Liverpool thing. And then as with FSG, as I'm sure we'll come on to, kind of the cultural crossovers between the two. I think he saw more of himself in that situation than he would have done at, say, at the time, Sunderland or Southampton mm-hmm. or someone like that. So you said that it was the salary cap which put him off. Is Was that purely it? Because did he get, it sounded like he did get that close or he certainly did get the opportunity to take over the club. 
It was. It, the stadium was a big thing for him too, and he went through a really difficult stadium deal with uh, Foxborough that he built in New England. And the only the reason I giggled then is because depending on who you talk to, that was either a really creative deal or a shady one. You can insert whatever <laughs> words you want depending on how you feel about Bob Kraft. Is kind of how that went down. I'm going to say it was great. I mean, he just basically bought his own steel and was like, "I'm doing it," and they said, "Okay." So. Uh, you couldn't pull that off, obviously, in, in 2008 with a new cycle and what have you, uh, just around Anfield. Um, and I think he understood the complexities once he met with Rick Parry and so on about what it would mean to me. It's not the same as in New England where the stadium's crumbling and people are fine moving, you know, and you sat on the seat. It would be, you would be the guy coming in from the States and demolishing this, you know, icon in the city. So, um that I think that just the whole package of wage bill plus stadium, I think he thought it was a bit rich for his blood. FSG obviously took took the bait and, and bought the club, and we'll come on to those mm-hmm. in a moment. Uh, one of the parts of the, uh, the the story that you've you've written was it kind of speculates what he would have been like as an owner. What what do you think? Just to explain to our listeners here, if he had said, you know what, don't worry about the stadium, I'll work something out. The salary cap, I'll work around. What do you think Kraft as the Liverpool owner would have looked like? I don't think it would have gone so well. I don't think he'd be a great fit. He's a tremendous sports owner in so much that he doesn't really do all that much. Um, he's brilliant at glad handing. He's brilliant. Uh, as you said, he's charismatic. He gets it with the, the fans and he can explain stuff. Not that he's really had to, honestly. It's not been any troubling times. They've, you know, and the second year he had Bill Belichick, the legendary coach, they're, they're winning the Super Bowl. And then he got Tom Brady and they're winning all the Super Bowls. So, He's not had that many trying times. Um, and from a business perspective, he's obviously done a tremendous job, but his son honestly handles almost all of that stuff and has done from day one. So um, I, I do think that his whole thing is about passion and how much he loves um, the city of Boston and what it means to him to be successful and trying to find any avenue possible for success, investing in data analysis before other teams, all that stuff rather than FSG where it comes from a business point of view, came from a passion point of view of just wanting to win. Now, I think that can in the Premier League maybe get toxic when it's deadline day or you're trying to sign a player and should we do this, should we do that? Whereas his, kind of his, his best instincts are curbed a little bit by the salary cap. I think as much as the money thing, that's what he's talking about himself when he says the salary cap put him off. I don't think he could have contained himself necessarily and he would have been a little bit overbearing. <laughs> and it's interesting, what do you think he felt when FSG did take over the club? Because as we'll come on, on to in a moment in terms of like their relationship, their rivalry, these two huge egos, people with huge egos in, in the same city, same states. How do you think he felt or has he spoke about how he felt when FSG did actually take over Liverpool? He's not spoke about how he felt. And I know at the time that he, the only reason he got involved the second time was out of a like, well, let's see if we can drive this price up a little. You know, I'm not going to let them do this for free type thing, <laughs> which was funny because I don't think they, when I spoke to people over at the pages, I don't think the second time around they realized how cataclysmic the bank situation was. Mm-hmm. I think they just thought it was available again. And once you got into the weeds, Robert Kraft didn't have the nimbleness to figure out the mechanics of that deal, which was obviously very difficult with the legalese of how you get those two guys out and buy the club and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, listeners will know the story. That was really hard to work, and they're quite brilliant guys and were able to make it happen. Um, I don't think I'd, he would have been able to get through those complexities. Um, I know now that he's not happy when he sees the value of Liverpool now to what he was offered it as in 2008. I'm sure he can't believe it. And I'm sure when he sees a European Cup being paraded, you know, he owns the New England Revolution too. So he's in the soccer world, mm-hmm. um, but to a very lesser degree. Um, when he sees John Henry and Tom Werner holding the European Cup at Madrid, I'm sure it's a bit like that would be great. 
Sure it will. You know, it's the benefit of hindsight, I suppose. But yeah. reading the piece, I'm really warm to craft. I'm not a huge American sports fan. I said to you this before we press record. So again, it's it's great to, to read stories like this where you, you, you're getting informed yourself. I'm really warm to the guy reading throughout it. <clears throat> and what I found quite funny about it, because I, I understand what a job FSG have done at Liverpool eventually, I wasn't warming towards FSG the more you described them. <laughs> again, that without being, I say you've got to always put the caveat of what they've actually done for Liverpool. And what really surprised me even more was the actual way both franchises, both sets of people are actually viewed in Boston as well and New England mm-hmm. in the respect that Boston, we've talked about how much success the Patriots had, but the FSG, what they've done for the Red Sox is incredible as well, isn't it? But the kind of love from the, the, the paying public, the supporters, it's, it's not the same, is it? No, I mean, the Red Sox, the, their ownership is viewed as kind of cold and calculated and a little bit conceited if you want to go to the worst of those of those words. Um, no one can deny the set, uh, the uh, success. But when you look at, like, ending the the curse, the 100-year curse of the Bambino, you would think those guys would be, like, just saints for life. Yeah. You know, they would never have to buy a drink and all that stuff. And it just isn't the case. There isn't the love, there isn't the warmth. You know, one of the big things in sports ownership that, and I know this drives the FSG guys crazy, and I think I put it in the piece, is Robert Kraft is Mr. Kraft. And that's the big thing with NFL owners, is they are Mr. Someone. He is not Mr. Henry. It's John Henry and Tom Werner, or it's FSG. And that kind of stuff rubs them the wrong way. They cannot believe, based on what they've achieved there, that there isn't this kind of love. But it's just not the kind of characters they are. They are businessmen, and that's fine, and it really works for them. And it works massively for Liverpool, and that was what was needed. Whereas with the Patriots, when you have a salary cap, and it's all kind of a level playing field from that side of things, and you can do some stuff with coaching staffs and what have you, and facilities and that kind of stuff, that when you win, I mean, Bob Kraft is like a hero. And even when he gets into scandals, and there's a tension going on between the two of them, because John Henry owns the Boston Globe, mm-hmm. and they cover Bob Kraft's personal life, which can be salacious at times, <laughs> um, no one cares in the city. They actually get offended that people are attacking Bob Kraft, and they get offended that John Henry is attacking Bob Kraft, as though he is setting the editorial line of the paper that he owns, rather than the other way around. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. Do you think... Do you think they're bothered by that FSG? I know you said kind of like they, it, it, it gets on the on the nerves that the fact that John Henry's not referred to as Mister Henry, but you know, everyone's got egos, and I'm sure billionaires have got even bigger egos than the rest oh. of us. Kind of thing. Does does that that annoy them? The fact that they've brought all this success to the Red Sox and they're not seen in the same light almost. Uh, I I don't I think that it's not like they're actively disliked. There is some stuff going on uh, in and around the city, particularly around Fenway Park, in terms of gentrification. That they get uh, they get a decent amount of stuff, should we say, from locals. But that is very pointed. It's very you know it's, it's fragmented, and some people just want to watch games and win sports. If you start tying in some of the cultural identity stuff, I think people who look at sports through that prism, or maybe come from the other desks, you have to think. Like Liverpool, the Red Sox are the biggest thing in the city. The Pages don't play in the city of Boston. They play out. They are New England's team. The Red Sox are in the city. It is the beacon of the city um, and is the most important thing to kind of the heartbeat and the vibe of the city day to day because they play every day. Um, so when you look at it through that prism, that's where the stuff going on with the, the business model and the buying up of areas around the ground, as we've seen like with Anfield, that becomes really contentious and that's a, that's a big issue. And then some of the sporting stuff kind of recedes to the back. Um, but I mean, there's still plenty of people perfectly grateful. They still have a massive payroll, one of the highest in the league. So that stuff 
isn't so bad. It really is more of the culture and just kind of the, they don't love it as much as I do. And why don't they love it as much as I do? It's this weird dichotomy of the success almost is enough. They need to love the success as much as I love the success. And it's quite interesting. You referred to that when you, in terms, when you talk about how and why they've been such a, such a success at Liverpool, whereas Bob Craft is, I say, he's Mr. Charisma, Mr. Personality. And, and, and you know, we're, we are wired in different ways where the guys in FSG aren't like that. But you actually argue that it was the per, they were the perfect people for Liverpool at that time, in, in, at that moment in time when they actually taken charge of the club. Yeah, when I've sat and thought about it, I, I think that he would be, now, he is not like this as just a person, so I wouldn't want to confuse that. But it would be more to the Hicks and Gillette side of things, where you have the great opening press conference. He has the sparkling smile. He holds the scarf. He pronounces Liverpool funny. Um, you know, and he makes all kinds of either promises or the, the non-promises promises, kind of like the Klopp thing. Um, and everyone falls in love with him at first, and then maybe further down the line, it spins off a bit. He's not as involved to the day-to-day. He does live in Boston. That becomes an issue because he put himself so present at the start, whereas the FSG guys have never really made it a thing, right? They don't make it about themselves. So when they are over there, it is easy when you have the ticket fiasco and when you have the furlong of staff to say, well, it's easy for them when they sit over on the other side to, to just send orders on down. But it's it's not as massive as a thing personality-wise because we don't see them day-to-day. Mm-hmm. Um, and we never have done, really. So, um, yeah, I think that, I think that, like I said earlier, the, the, the stuff that makes him so great would have been would have just been a bad fit at that time. And the things that make FSG such a... I mean, they are, other than the Glazers, the only ownership group to will have won a Premier League title, most likely, mm-hmm. and have won one of the major other sports in America. They've won the World Series and they'll win a Premier League title and the European Cup. Only the Glazers have that as well. So it's an it's really an unrivaled, um, an unrivaled degree of success. It is. It really is. And... It, <laughs> sometimes because you just mentioned this couple of the missteps they've made in terms of like ticket pricing and then recently we we seen one regarding the the furloughing of, of kind of, of staff which they, they quickly re- reversed and you know what people make mistakes in all walks of life to their credit they're obviously listening aren't they you know okay maybe they get it wrong at first but they're, they're not immune then they are removed in terms of John Henry's back in America but they are listening to the fan base aren't they and if they make a mistake they rectify it they do. I think there, there's an issue with fan engagement in terms of the beforehand. There is a lot of like backtracking and apologizing, which is like, well, could you just come and speak to people beforehand, which mm-hmm. I know is a big issue among supporters group. And and is 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 a fair one, I think, that, yeah, if you're going to make these giant decisions, then maybe have a meeting beforehand rather than getting uh, rather than having to, to backtrack yourself. But like I said, they do listen and they have FU money. So they could just not listen and they could take the approach of, well, the supporters to us in Shanghai are just as important as the people actually in Anfield. That that is an approach like the Glazers have taken. Mm-hmm. They don't care. So, yeah, I, I do think that no one does. You don't have to give them a round of applause for that stuff. You know, it doesn't have to go the other way and say, oh, well, brilliant by them for for taking it back. But you can acknowledge that, like, well, that's the best we could have hoped for is we, we voiced our opinions and they listened. Definitely. And they have, again, sometimes we can hang on major incidents like that, but they have been a successful Liverpool. There's no question about it. You've just said it there, they're, along with the Glazers, they're the one family who've had success on both sides of the pond. And you've got to remember the state Liverpool were in when they actually take, take took charge of the club compared to where it is now. And as you said, how much, how much the club's worth, probably up to £2 billion. 
Yeah, the Glazer one muddies the water because they came in when the greatest manager in Premier League history was just happened to be rampaging yeah. through everyone. Yeah. So, you know, that their success is so-so as well. And then you see what happened when Ferguson left and it was a house of cards and what they've actually done is basically nothing. If you look at their era, should we say, when, when they've had their guy in charge and stuff, it's been a shambles. So they deserve massive credit for it. And what I find most fascinating about them as characters in terms of being like the spreadsheet guys, the business guys is how even though they are kind of cold, and I know they don't like that word, but I, I think it's true, is they are kind of removed just as people anyway. Um, they sell emotion. Mm-hmm. Their whole brand with the Red Sox, with the uh, with Liverpool, is to use the past and use that as the marketing to buy players to win games to their market in the future. And it's brilliant. And it's really easily done because then as the fans, you get the morsel of the thing you want. I got my club back. This is still a community. It still feels local and wholesome. But they're using that to make people around the world where they make massive revenue feel like want to be a part of that community, want to be part of Beyond the Cop. That's the dream for people around the world. Um, And it's a magical, magical marketing trick. and And it works brilliantly. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Helped, no doubt, by the appointment of Jurgen Klopp, who truly does get the club and is not only a fabulous man-manager, he's a fabulous tactician. He just ticks all the boxes. <laughs> Again, you don't need me to describe how good Klopp is, but can I just ask you, Ollie, like, how much mm. does the coach-manager kind of matter in American sports compared to, say, English football, where we do put people like Ferguson Klopp, Mourinho in his heyday, Guardiola now, almost on a pedestal kind of thing. You know, they are the most important person at the club. Yeah, it changes sport to sport. In the NFL, the coach is everything. The trophy is named after the best coach of all time, Vince Lombardi, until Mm -hmm. Bill Belichick came along. We don't name the Premier League after Ferguson, which we may do at some point. Um, (laughs) That would go down well. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, could you imagine? You see just how revered a single individual is, that one team that everyone's like, oh yeah, that's cool. Just name after their coach. Cool. in, in baseball, all that matters is the general manager, the guy who uh, buys and sells players, basically. Um, everything else is just noise. Um, and then in basketball, if you have the best player, you win. That's, it's that simple. There's only five guys on the court. You can only affect things so much. If you have Michael Jordan, you win six titles. Mm-hmm. I'm sure people are watching the documentary now. If you have LeBron James, you win a few as well. So um, it, it's not the same outside of the NFL, which is where you look at someone like Bob Kraft and it's like, he just happened to get a guy who's now been there for two going on three decades. Like it's, there's a great deal of luck involved in that. Yeah, definitely. And you, you've got to give Klopp so much credit because without him, I just don't think this level of success would be the same. I think that's fair to say, but there's no getting away from it. What FSG have done, have, have put a structure in place that for when Klopp eventually leaves, say in four years time, he may stay longer, he may go early. We just don't know. There is a structure there now, isn't there, in place where the next manager should come in, unlike what you were saying earlier with the Glazers and Ferguson, where there was no succession, there was no kind of continuity. That shouldn't be the case with Liverpool. No, and you get the impression with them that they think about that all the time, where it wouldn't just be like, that they don't just load up Klopp, that they load up the infrastructure. And he himself does a good job of pointing that out, that it's the whole thing. It's seeing the players come through the academy. It's investing in all that stuff and not just hoping that you get the transcendent manager who flips the switch and it's great forever. And the thing you got to give them credit for is when Klopp was out of work, obviously everyone in the world, Madrid, everyone would have been interested in having Klopp. But they did... And he came for this, the stadium and the, the atmosphere, and he just kind of felt a symbiosis with the club that was revered from history. I understand all of that. But 
if this almost a weird compliment, is they didn't rip the soul out of the club, therefore they allowed him to come, if yeah. you know what I mean. Because yeah. they could have, that's my point with Kraft, is that I think that for all his good intentions, we would have been left with maybe playing in a soulless bowl and having an owner who was just distant and not as invested in it. He was not the Cronkies. You know, the, you know these guys are not the Cronkies. They are invested. They are talking to people all the time. Um, and they've done as good a job as they possibly could have been expected to do without people being locally from the city of trying to understand it as best they can. And that's as much as they can do. They're never going to fully get it, right? They can't. It's not It's not to their bones the way it is for supporters. But they've tried, and they've tried to think people in who that is what it's like for them. Um, and then gone out and saw attributes that they think will work with that well and built an amazing infrastructure that allowed someone like Klopp to come. It is interesting, isn't it? It's, it's almost... I used to cover Blackburn Rovers for a local paper in that part of the world called the Lancashire Telegraph, and they had the Venkies in charge, which... Obviously, if anyone knows the history of that, it's, 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 it's pretty it's pretty colourful. And one of the big questions is, why don't they come over here? They don't understand the club. And there were a lot of criticisms of Venkis that were completely justified and, and continue to be, even though they do continue to prop up the club. Is it unreasonable? Let's, just, let's call ourselves supporters rather than journalists here. Let's just fans. Mm-hmm. Is it unreasonable to expect these foreign owners like FSG to come over here and understand all our culture and understand everything? Like, surely they can, they can buy into it, they can learn about it, but why should we expect them to be in the the main stand every day to be at Blackburn every week. Is, is that unreasonable? Yeah, I think it's just uh, adjusting to, to the new times. It's like when everyone fell in love with Mike Ashley at first when he's down in pints, you know, <laughs> and, then, and then, you re- <laughs> then he reveals this character, right? It's like, all you want is a stable, nice infrastructure in place. Uh, I think all supporters want is that if the manager asks for player X, that they at least consider it. It's like the very basic stuff now. I think supporters have started to slightly adjust knowing it's not the local guy. I think when you take on an institution, and that's the difference with someone like Liverpool, I know Blackburn is in that region too. Mm-hmm. If you take on a genuine institution, you do have a duty of care, I think. Yes. Um, something like redeveloping Anfield, getting to know the local people in and around the stadium who um, all that went down with them previously, you definitely have a duty to like really work towards that and not just be the people who come in to pick up the European Cup. I, I do believe that. I don't think it's unreasonable to, to expect that from someone because you're not just buying a business. If you're just buying a business, then just go and buy it, you know, just go and take over Cadbury's. You know, <laughs> there's plenty of money to be made out there that's not in sports, if that's the case. I do agree. I was being devil's advocate a little bit there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I, I do agree. That's my feeling as well too. Uh, let's just talk, you've talked, you've used the word infrastructure a couple of times mm-hmm. there and we've, Liverpool obviously are lauded now for the work they do on the the data side of things, and obviously signings are not. It's not the old school way. You send a scout to watch someone, they report back to the manager. Yeah, I like him. There's a lot more thought going into it now, and they seem to be pioneers in this. But this is the kind of thing that's been going on in American sport for a long time. Yeah, I mean, we go all the way back to Moneyball, which has become this a word now that's just almost lost its meaning because it's used so much but it is essentially finding inefficiencies you know people get all upset about it from the old school it's it's just finding shapes and body sizes that don't look like the traditional thing but outperform or undervalued um and what the red sox did back in the day when they first won the world series the first go around and as you say they were considered uh pioneers kind of jumping on the back of the oakland days and the team that really mm-hmm. brought the money ball phenomena to the fore um what they did was they married the data with cash. So they married the two approaches. They said, okay, well, let's go and get the best data guys. So let's mm-hmm. use our money to get the best people at finding the inefficiencies. Um, and I think you could say the same thing with Liverpool is they've gone and they found, you know, Mohamed Salah, the year that he was 
But Liverpool picked him up. He was, by the nerdiest of metrics, the second most influential player in the final third of the pitch behind Lionel Messi. Wow. Okay, great. So then you also have to go and do some of the, uh, just the typical stuff that you do in football, which is have contacts, tell you about the player's personality and, and all that type of classic stuff too. But then also, when you see a Virgil van Dijk, here's 80 million quid. Yes. You know, there's no yeah. inefficiency that needs to be exploited there. They did try that at certain points. But no, sometimes we need a world-class goalkeeper. We go, we buy Allison, And we try and find help around the margins, which may be in the academy setup. I think as they've gone through this process, they've learned more and more that a lot of the best players just are known by everyone really quick. Uh-huh. You know, they're, they're, it's not as easy to go and say, let's just go and get this this guy from Swansea who we can plug in and might make a world-class player. Though we have seen that with like Andy Robertson and, and things like that. But I think the data approach in football is more on the medical side, the sports science, and then just at the academy and youth level and touches of the ball and, and things of that nature. How important is Michael Edwards behind all this? You know, again, he's, he's someone probably four, five, six, seven years ago, you would never expect him to have such influence at a, a major football club in England. No, and he's become like this... Um, Emperor Palpatine figure. Like <laughs> I, we were talking yesterday, I, I wrote a piece on him. I could not find a picture of him. The no. only picture we can find ever is a, a Jurgen Klopp contract extension and his back <laughs> to the camera at all times. Like he just does he is he real? Is he uh, the guy from Usual Suspects? Like who is he? Who's my? Does anyone know? Has anyone seen him? Um, no, I mean, he does. He just seems to load up over his. I call it his band of merry data analysts. Like he does just seem to have like. Every time you come into contact with someone in football, they do something with Liverpool. It's either a throwing coach or it's a data guy. Like they, they, they are leaving no stone unturned. And that going to the margins, like maybe you can't find uh, market inefficiency in finding a world class centre, but can you find in well how many restarts are there in the game? How many of them come from throwings? Are there experts in throwings? And suddenly we have, you know, a throwing coach or a throwing consultant um, just to help us perfect that side of the game. So I do think that empowering him the same way they empowered back in the day with Theo Epstein was the GM with the right side to the start. Really young guy, really super smart, this new kind of MB out of Harvard type character. Um, I do think they're attracted to the, that of having someone like Jurgen Klopp who has some of the bombast and some of the passion, some of the stuff you need in football, but then having someone who can also bring a data science approach to it as well. Yeah, really interesting. And do you think this is to come for the years to come now? Do you think more and more clubs will copy the Liverpool model? I think the Liverpool model is mostly just the model. They have just been the best. And it, it, you cannot under undersell how transcendent of a figure Jurgen Klopp is, I think. And as we get more removed from it, and I know it sounds hyperbolic, but there will be almost a Johan Cruyff thing going on mm-hmm. with both Dortmund and Liverpool with kind of the Ajax-Barcelona um, comparison there. That I, I do think that it's a once-in-a-lifetime type appointment where you just kind of hit the jackpot. Um, and everybody's, you know, even the clubs that get laughed at into Milan, throwing cash at Ashley Young and all this type of stuff, they all have these similar setups. It's just who enacts it well and who, when it comes down to it, really believes in it and has faith in it and trusts it. And and they obviously do because they've done it in other walks of life and had success and clearly had success here in Liverpool. But I don't think it's just that there's anything so obvious to copy other than they have really great talent in all their individual areas, scouting, uh, data, so on. Michael Edwards, as you mentioned. Um, and then they have this transcendent coach and a raft of amazing players. Like They just hit the jackpot time after time on their squad. The only real whiff has been Naby Keita, who may well come good and be another amazing signing. So. Very true. It's interesting, isn't it? Because 
we we know Klopp, as I said earlier on the this conversation, that Klopp's probably going to be here for another four years. What do you think the end game is for FSG? They've taken Liverpool to the heights of European and world champions, and whenever football restarts, it's there's no getting away from it. Liverpool will be crowned champions. We all hope it will be on the field. It'd be great if it's in front of the supporters. It may be behind closed doors. But even if it wasn't, it would be champions, points per game, whatever way you want to look at it. Liverpool will be mm-hmm. deserving winners of the 2019-20 title. So that's another mountain climb for FSG. First title in 30 years. What, what What's in it for them now? Obviously, they've made a, they can make a lot of money when they do sell the club. What do you think the future is for them in Liverpool? I think what we see now is kind of the stuff that they've done with the Red Sox in Boston recently. And I wrote about this a little bit in a follow-up piece uh, last week where it's the thing I mentioned earlier of it's the Megaplex without ever being gaudy and saying we have a Megaplex. So it's, yeah. you know, they're going to build this Hilton Hotel. It's going to be outside Anfield. I'm sure we call it the Cop Hotel or the Clop Hotel maybe if it's in five, ten years' time. <laughs> uh, you know, it'll be all this stuff that you don't quite realize they're making the money from. Is that a Pizza Express? But it's they're making the money from. So I think that's what's going to happen. And then maybe they give a community centre back to the community, hopefully. Um, and kind of that type of thing where you start bundling in all these different businesses and it becomes this huge sprawling centre that you kind of forget what Anfield used to just look like. And it happens over time. I think that is kind of the long-term end game. I think the most interesting question is when push comes to shove, if they decide to sell, do they decide to sell Liverpool or do they decide to sell the Red Sox? Mm-hmm. And this is a big thing that is happening um, on the other side of the pond where Liverpool fans talk about maybe them being a little bit absent with situations like the furloughing situation, if they were on the ground, would they have read the, the pulse of the room a little bit better? Um, same thing is happening over in Boston. All the success they're having with Liverpool, all the money they pile in, um, and then all the stuff that's happening with the infrastructure around Fenway Park, similar to Anfield, it's, well, are they getting ready to sell? Mm-hmm. They're cutting back the payroll of the staff. Are they getting ready to sell this and then just go and focus on all the money that's available in the Premier League as opposed to baseball, which is an ageing sport? Um, and I do think that the more likely scenario there would be, why would you give up the bonanza of the Premier League, the European world champions, where the franchise value to use franchise expression is only going to keep going up the tv deals are going to get better amazon is going to come to the table it'll be the most bizarre time to get out of that game as opposed to baseball very interesting indeed just before we finish mate uh Mm -hmm. talk a little bit about yourself uh we've talked about the influence of kind of american sport on the data side the analytical side of things and the psychological side of things and at liverpool and increasingly in english football and british football Yourself, you know, you you wrote a fairly straight piece in this respect, but you do do a lot of data writing, delving deep into the stats, and we're seeing it with ourselves on Liverpool.com. Uh, Josh and Dave, Josh Williams, and Dave Hughes, who do the Analyze and Anfield podcast, it's increasingly becoming prevalent in the written and broadcast media as well, isn't it? You see mm-hmm. sites like the Athletic, who obviously launched big in the past year in in, in the UK, and they've got uh, they've got writers who are doing this kind of thing. It, it seems to be a, a growing influence on the writing side of it as well. Yeah, I think being a nerd is cool now <laughs> in sports. It's, it's it's allowed these days. And I think people do kind of want more than just kind of the cliches and what have you in traditional column writing and just like this happened and that happened. The why has become such a big thing. The why in American sports broadcasting has been around probably since about 95, 96 would be when it started to happen. Then when the Moneyball thing went through in the early 2000s, it just exploded into like, wow, there's a whole new world behind the scenes that no one knew about. And as I mentioned before, everyone from the Ivy League was now getting into sports. They were saying no to Wall Street and millions and saying, let's go win World Series titles. Um, And I think we are seeing it come across here. And it's exciting because it just makes everything better. It's like, I want to know 
why Tingai and Dombele's numbers are lying to me. Someone mm-hmm. explain that to me, why his numbers are good, but then Carragher gives me a breakdown showing that he's a fraud. Yes. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. We want more of that. We just want to be more informed. I, I think it's exciting and it's fresh and uh, I welcome it. Just again, before we finish, what are your hopes now? Obviously, the hope, I'm sure, like everyone else, is the safe well-being of all the people we love, friends and family, and then getting back to work, eventually getting back to some kind of normality. What do you think about the football? It, it doesn't seem a day go by where a new scenario has presented itself. It does feel like the government want the Premier League back. The Premier League certainly will want it back from a, a money issue. What, what do you want to see happen now in the, these next couple of months? I, I just think it's changing so rapidly. I, I don't know. I, I did find it almost ironic that the government went cap in hand to the Premier League for the national interest after they leaked and slammed <laughs> Premier League football players for stealing wages from nurses yes. for yeah. two weeks. That was interesting. Um, so I, yeah, whatever way you slice it, I, I, I mean, I just don't know. I, the, the biggest, biggest issue, obviously, I'm sure you've covered it ad nauseum at this rate, is promotion relegation is mm-hmm. everything in terms of the finances. And I just don't know how. Everyone talks about the moral of having a 75% season and then, you know, for, over one that is 0% right now. Like, how can you do that? It's just, to me, all, all about the legality and insurance policies, honestly. It sounds boring, but it just is. Like, you will be tired of in litigation for 15 years with Leeds and the teams relegated or not relegated or whatever the case is, or missed out on European revenue. Um, and then can you even start the season of Leeds is in the middle of a court case and you go up against billionaires in mm-hmm. these court cases. They have all deep pockets and billions on the line in terms of value of clubs and then just broadcast revenue. What do you do with the broadcasters? Do you give them a makeup uh, letter? Do you, I don't know what you do. So I, I have no idea. I think you, you have to have an outcome to this season, um, whether it is the points per game thing or it's the, the the season at halfway. I don't know if you can come back and, and figure some places out and have a playoff and make everyone happy. I, I have no idea. Neither do I. <laughs> to be quite honest, <laughs> neither do I. <laughs> neither do I. But what I do know. What would you I, like to see? Is there anything? Is the one I, that you have I, in mind? Even just from an excitement point of view, you'd be interested. I, I, in? I, you know what? I, this part of me, I don't really care about the return of football at the moment because I realise there's bigger things going on. But you know what? There is part of me that if they can do it, and then if say the amount of tests increase and the amount of protective care increase and that that gets not boxed off but improves from where we are now. There is part of me from the, the mental side of things that people will enjoy football. Behind closed foot doors football is not going to be the same as going the game but no. we're not probably be going the game for a, for a good while yet and we kind of have to get our heads around that. And there is part of me, say if we get to July and things have improved but obviously there'll be a lot of lives lost so I don't say something like that lightly and football does come back for a month, it may improve everyone, it may just lift everyone and then mm-hmm. I think when we get football back it will feel like okay we're getting closer to normality and I hope that's what happens but like like anyone if the government was to turn around and say listen there's no football to September the 1st you can't really complain too much can you? Mm-hmm. No I, I do think that it will be undeniably exciting to have like a we we're only allowed to play for two weeks and so everyone must play like every other day. Yeah, eight all games like, in two weeks. We're all, <laughs> we're all at Wembley and we're only playing every other day for two weeks. That would be, that would be amazing. Really, would. yeah. And the thing is, you know what I think will happen is, given the fact what now we're probably seven or eight weeks since Liverpool's game against Atletico Madrid and we're probably going to do a similar time till it probably it may return. We're probably going to cherish football a lot more than we probably yes. even did before, aren't we? Yes. 
Yes. And I've said before, like I'm unashamedly a Liverpool fan. I, I only, I am not involved anymore in the online discussion of this stuff. I'm out of the Twitter discourse of football, of the banter brigade and all that jazz. I just want to be able to hug my dad and say, we did it. It's over. Yeah. And I already, I, I said, I wrote this in the column the other day, Boxing Day for Liverpool fans, Leicester 4-0 was the day. Mm-hmm. That was the day you got the hug and the initial hug and say, look, it, it's happened, it's over. So whether they call it that date, which there's some arguments for, some arguments against, as long as I get to have that hug with my dad, that genuinely is all that matters to me at this point, whether they play games or not. And I'm sure everyone will have their own selfish reasons for, for arguing one way or the other. Of course, of course. And the thing is, what you can't forget, football, we know, could come back within the next couple of months behind closed doors. And it might be not till next year when everyone's back at Anfield, everyone's mm-hmm. back at Goodison, Old Trafford, the Etihad, wherever, whoever, which team you support, you'll be back there one day. And, and Liverpool, in this respect, that first game back, the Premier League trophy will be getting lifted and it will be that kind of moment that yeah. everyone's kind of, yeah, you could have had it already, but you'll get that again. So, yeah, uh, yeah I think everyone, you've just got to try and stay positive in these times, haven't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ollie, thanks very much, mate. Really, really enjoyed uh, listening to the to, to all about the story that you've you've wrote. And I just again advise people if they've not checked it out, it's called FSG nearly lost Liverpool ownership to Boston rival, and Anfield would have been very different. And it's on the Liverpool.com website right now. I'd really like to catch up again in the future, mate. And if not, see you again back in the office as soon, <laughs> soon as possible. <laughs> so soon enough. You've been listening to the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo.